Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Runner Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. This week is Hunger and Homelessness Awareness Week at CSUB, and if you're looking for ways to get involved, here are some themes for the week. Monday is food distribution at the in the Encardo Center, Lot 1 at 10 a.m. This is open to faculty, staff, and the entire Bakersfield community. Tuesday is a Zoom webinar about supporting students' basic needs at the State University. The webinar is from 12 to 1 and will be discussing research and campuses' efforts to address food and housing insecurity. Wednesday is holding two Zoom webinars. The first one is from 10.30 to 12, and it is hosted by Sacramento State, exploring the development of an emergency housing program. The second webinar is from 12 to 1. This discussion will be about the stigma around homelessness and how to gain empathy, as well as a Q&A. Thursday is a community conversation. Campus leaders and community will be able to discuss hunger and homelessness in the Kern County as well as at CSUB. A Zoom will be held from 11 a.m. to 12. And Friday will be a basic needs ambassador training. This will be an opportunity to learn about the on-campus basic needs resources available to students while building the skills necessary for being an effective helper. A Zoom will be held from 12 to 4. For this segment, I have a few guests joining me today. David Clevenger and Lewis Gill. Dave is the CEO of the Tulare Lighthouse Rescue Mission, as well as working with the homelessness shelter in Hanford. You might remember Lewis Gill from a previous podcast about sexual assault, as well as being the executive director for the Bakersfield Alliance Against Family Violence and Sexual Assault. He is also in charge of the Bakersfield Homeless Shelters. I really hope you guys enjoy this discussion as much as I do and are able to get something out of this talk. Maybe even change your perspective on others who aren't as fortunate when it comes to having a place to call home. Uh, Dave, if you want to go ahead and say uh, what you're involved in in here in Tulare, like what your what your job is like day to day and stuff. Okay, yeah. So um, I CEO of the Lighthouse Rescue Mission. Uh, my um, role is to set um, vision, strategy, and provide resources or or steward resources so that the staff can do the hard work of building relationships with people and train on, you know, occupational opportunities, keep the shelter and our room and board houses um, running in tip top shape, keeping our vehicles moving, processing thrift industries. That's what my staff get to do. I just get to, to, uh, I get the pleasure of making sure that they're resourced and are, and are doing it within the strategic vision that we have in the organization. Thank you. And Lewis, I know we talked about in our previous podcast about the alliance and stuff, but we didn't really get a chance to talk about your involvement with the shelters in Bakersfield. So what does that look like for you? So I'm uh, also the CEO of the Bakersfield Homeless Center, as long as the as well as the Alliance Against Family Violence and Sexual Assault. They're sister organizations with a shared administration for cost savings. So the Bakersfield Homeless Center is a large family shelter, and my responsibility, much like Dave's, is we have to make sure that the people walking with those folks that show up having been through trauma um, have the resources uh, that they need to help someone. And then if something gets in the way that they can't dislodge, it's it's my job to to move that barrier to try and help the individual. And most importantly, it's my job to recognize and acknowledge the incredible work 
that the people are doing day to day, helping individuals come out of those very difficult times because, well, nobody comes to us on a winning streak, (laughs) right? Something really bad has happened for them to have to ask, can you help? Mm -hmm. And then uh, Dave, did you always want to be involved with the homeless and helping or what really got your attention and wanting to help? No, I, I'll be honest. I never thought I would be involved with the homeless. It is not something that I uh, had actually pursued. I was Navy for 22 years. And, and as I was approaching retirement, one of my aspirations was to become a CEO, but also to serve on a couple of community nonprofit boards. And so I had this opportunity to, to serve on a board in Hanford, California, and a board, it was an organization that was failing and wanting new leadership, new, new board members, and wanting to resurrect the organization. And it happened to be at that point, a transitional supportive housing place. They asked if we would turn it into a Christian faith-based rescue mission. And so what started out as a board seat turned into me becoming the executive within about three months and learning about homelessness from that point forward. And in all honesty, giving all glory to God, he was wrestling with me and trying to get my attention that this is where he wanted me for a couple of years until I finally said, you know what, I really love this. I I really get it. This is right where he wants me to be. And Ever since then, I've just been flying and enjoying enjoying my walk, enjoying this work. I truly love the homeless business. And then so, Lewis, what made you want to get involved? So being very honest, homelessness was the one thing that I swore I would never do in nonprofits. So this falls into the category for me of God's got jokes, right? <laughs> because I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh. That is not a population I want any part of. I will work with kids. I will do that. And then, so my wife and I were living in the Bay Area. We had our son. And then my wife was pregnant with our twin daughters. I was like, we need grandparents. And so I started looking for a job somewhere near Porterville, Springville area. And I found the Bakersfield Homeless Center. And I was like, all right, any port in a storm, I'll take the job. And so I got the job and it was a smaller organization at that time. It was about 15, 16 employees, and the budget was modest, and it was easy to get your arms around. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And I had this prejudice of I was going to find drunken, stinky old men, and that that was going to be the entire population that I served. And, And I wasn't real certain how I felt about that. And then I walked onto campus my first day and I found a mom and a child in a stroller. And it really bothered me um, because I just hadn't considered that. And then I started asking questions and finding out that we weren't really set up to serve families. We were in a very classic older model of a large group dormitory that was for primarily single men. And that was not the growing population in homelessness at the time. So we switched over and started serving families and I just fell in love with people, right? And even those guys that I never wanted to serve, I began to see them. Instead of the the prejudice that I had formed to define them, I saw a brother in pain, right? Like really see them. And if you do that, it's really hard to hold a negative opinion of someone because even somebody like if you've never been around somebody that's schizophrenic and chemically dependent and they're just losing it that day, 
right? If you can get your heart to the space of imagine being trapped in that mind and that's where they have to exist day in, day out. And they're that afraid that that's how they're acting. And so from going from, I don't ever want to do this to we need to love people where they are, not where we want them to be. It was a big journey, but I'm grateful that God worked on my heart so that I had the ability to do that. Because that doesn't happen by accident, right? No. That's some intentional work that happened to me. Yeah. As my friends like to call that heart surgery. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. I like that. Now, you said it yourself that you had this kind of mentality of what homeless were like. Do you believe Mm -hmm. that that's kind of a stigma that a lot of people do have about the homeless in their area? I think that a lot of people are very frustrated with the visual results of extreme poverty and not having access to sanitation, bathrooms, being chemically dependent, being mentally ill in public, right? It's messy. Homelessness is messy in every way imaginable with the, the, the trash and the detritus that is left behind to the emotional reactions. And it's pretty easy to want to defend yourself from that. And if you're trying to defend yourself, it's pretty easy then to make a decision that those folks are wrong for X reason. And if they're wrong, well, then it's you can put a label on them that can really be false. Because of instead of seeing somebody suffering, we see someone that's taking our peace away, right? And so it becomes about us instead of about how can we serve. And and that's hard. The average citizen doesn't stand in that space, right? They just think, I want that out of my neighborhood, as opposed to why do people have to go through this? And it's a very different heart space. Yeah. Would you like to add anything? Well said. <laughs> yeah, very well said. And And I think... So making it about them, too, is I think that if they get into that headspace of why somebody truly is homeless, the the myriad, the hundreds of reasons why somebody could become homeless, it also opens up the door that they could conceivably be not that far away from that same reality. And that becomes Mm. people to understand. So I think I think that becomes a little too close to home for for people. Yeah, well said. Now I know I I know I've heard this phrase a lot. Why don't they just go out and get a job? I don't know if either of you have heard that before, but not a lot of people understand that they don't have access to they don't have access to a home. They don't have access to a car. They don't have access to clean water to shower. Have Have you heard it? And what? How do you kind of combat that when someone says that? I'd love to tackle this one. I think that. Well, number one, the the supposition that somebody should just pull up, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and and go out there and get a job is a really silly response. And I think it's just meant to be deflective when when the reality is, is that, sure, it's it's a matter of having good clothes, a shower and and the ability to present yourself. But it's so much more than that. I think it's more of a deeper emotional issue is when the sum of your existence is now an encampment and whatever you could fit into a shopping cart and all of your friends have closed the doors on you and you've burned so many bridges behind you that your self-worth, your ability to present yourself well, even in, in skills that you may have just down to a pat, you're an expert or a pro at, they, they go away, they're at the back burner. You don't have, the self-esteem does not exist anymore. What's been replaced there is, is deep emotional pain. And and I think the reason that it's so important to have communities like the Lighthouse, like the Bakersfield Homeless Center, like many other service providers is because we push back on that concept of you're not worthy. What we're doing is going, you are worthy. 
you and together with us as a community, we can help you get to a point where you'll feel good enough to go and pursue that job. And if you don't get hired, then we're going to accept you back open arms. We're still going to be right here with you and we'll try the next job. And so I, I think it always, whenever I hear that question, it drives me to go deeper into there's a level of emotional pain that people feel when they become homeless. And that's what needs to be addressed. And once you address it, people can thrive. That's good. I did a paper on this when I was a freshman in college and what they hit on and what a lot of what I researched was they, they do have a self-esteem issue, Mm. how they take on that, that I'm not worthy, that I'm not good enough, that I've messed Mm. up so many times. They they take on that, that so much that they're unable to, like you said, pick themselves up and and dust themselves off and try again. I, I totally agree with what you said as a community, that that is something that we need to do. We need to show compassion and that it's okay, you know, that no matter how many times you do mess up, that there's always going to be some there, someone there that's going to be able to help you up or even help you dust off some of those words. Yeah, the, the ugly question behind that thought is, do they merit the care and concern? Have they earned that grace and mercy? And it's so contrary to what actually is going on, right? That there's grace is not a merit-based system, right? And we can't treat it like it's a finite resource and that if we give it away that there's somehow going to be a dwindling supply, right? That's that's just not the case. And so there is this desire to kind of put big limits on how we care for one another. And yes, we have to be good stewards of the resources that we're given. But caring for people is a very personal relationship. And it doesn't have to do with, I will care for you if you'll act correctly. I'm not purchasing, right? Compassion is not a transaction. I'm not not buying your good behavior, right? What I am doing is I'm demonstrating to you that the lie that you have begun to believe that you do not have value is entirely false. And I am going to demonstrate to you that I see you and you do have value and you are loved. And then little by little, that truth can take hold. And then and then you have the chance for someone really making change. There's a gentleman that I know that um, has some mad carpentry skills. I mean, he's just, he's just great at the building trade. He was homeless three years ago, just stuck in a meth addiction, a whole mess when he showed up our shelter. One of the worst messes I've ever seen a man in. And as we got to know him, the reason for his homelessness came out in his story. And, and that's what I want to share is he, he went to work one day, he came home, his wife was not home. He called They had sisters living nearby, her sisters. They called, couldn't find out where she was at, called work and uh, called her work. And they wouldn't give any details. He ultimately found out that she was in the ER. And the reason work wouldn't give details is because this was a, she slipped in an unsafe works situation and cracked the base of her skull and immediately became disabled. And so now this gentleman who went to work one day, skilled carpenter, earning decent wages, his wife healthy, earning decent wages, supporting each other, doing very well, now became the sole breadwinner, the caregiver, and the person who needed to be emotionally strong for both of them in this major life change. And he couldn't handle the pressures of all of it. 
and started to drink. And that drinking started to spiral a little bit. And his family came around and said, hey, this is going to be a problem. And he said, well, I need some help here. They declined to help. It spiraled more and more and more until the family finally said, we need to get him away from her. And so now they took her away. And so now he lost the one thing that was really holding him all together. And he spiraled, completely spiraled. And his redemption came from number one, getting clean and being around people who understood what deep emotional pain and where the root of addiction comes from. Number two, from really getting back in touch with God through Christ about who he is and and, and who he wanted to be, God wants him to be. And that grace, that, that unmerited grace. And he started to start working again and getting back into stuff. And then there were just days that he had bad days and he just couldn't function on those days because he was too wrapped up about his past. And because we were able to go, we get it, we recognize it, we're going to give you a break, let you go on. He was able to pull through those days to the point of being fully capable provider now at this point. That's those kind of stories. That's what happens, why people can't just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, because there's always a story that led them to that point. So it's almost as if if they don't, if we don't see value in them, they don't see value in themselves. And, and then having patience for when, for the why, having patience to achieve the why they're where they're at. And that's when you can start replacing things to get individuals to thrive in their own way. Yeah, I think one of the really important things following what you said, which I think is a beautiful example, is that we don't give up when somebody else messes up, right? Because they're gonna make mistakes. They're gonna hurt themselves because they're in so much pain and they just don't know how to deal with those feelings. But it's always love that makes the connection towards healing. It's never judgment and isolation and all of that. That never bridges a heart that is that wounded. It has to be love. Well said. We have been given grace so many times. Right. Every day, like every time I have an unkind thought, you name it. And if I want to reflect it, it's going to come out in compassion. Right. That's the way I can give that away here. And then I also wanted to ask, what does the, the homeless situation look like and how does it differ from Bakersfield being a much bigger town to Tulare being a much smaller town? Uh, you want to go with Tulare and I'll talk about Bakersfield because I'm I don't know the situation in Tulare. Yeah, I don't know how we approach that other than I can, let me just share what my view is. I think that uh, we'll see whether it happens in the big cities or not too, because I'm I'm curious. Uh, Mm. The social service response has thrown lots of attention and energy into the homeless issue and it's growing. And so I have to ask the question, I think all of us should be asking the question, why is it growing? And I think that there are a number of causes that I've seen locally that are only beginning to manifest themselves. I think that number one, one of the major causes is the lack of affordable housing. I think people are being priced out of housing and when you lose your ability to call someplace your home, your dignity goes with it. That's one of the major causes. Number two, I think one of the other major causes is that there's a lot of unpurposeful living. You can And you can put that into a number of categories. It could be boredom. It could be not having been taught a skill. It could be spending time with peers who are already down a certain path, whether it be drugs or alcohol or illicit relationships, illicit activity. There's no purpose that they've grabbed onto or been allowed to grab onto that drives their day. 
And that's creating a tremendous increase in, in homelessness. And then there's lots of other things that are going on. And so, you know, not to get too in the weeds with this. I think it's the reason why a major response to homelessness and why I think we've seen a lot of success in this is because when you give somebody a positive, purposeful activity during the day and, and they grab onto it, and they feel a part of it. They feel like they belong to that. You've replaced a lot of negative pursuits and they want to be involved in the positivity. And so from my perspective, the the small town homeless responses create jobs or volunteer opportunities, create places for people to call home, tremendous increase in affordable housing. And we need communities of support that that are filled with grace and filled with understanding of what homelessness is, that peer support community aspect. That's what I see going on in the two communities that I lead the homeless response to. I think that he's absolutely right, starting with the lack of affordable housing. So back in 2008 with the crash, uh, the state of California eliminated something called redevelopment agencies. And it was the mechanism that the state had to invest so that developers could build low-income housing at a rate that it was affordable so that it made sense so that we could keep rate rents low. We haven't put anything like that back into place. And so most of those units were built out by like uh, 2012, 2013. And so we have not been developing low-income housing at a significant rate in this state for quite some time. And so our vacancy rates here in Bakersfield are less than 2% in affordable housing. And I know that that's fairly consistent across the state. And so if you've got an eviction, if you've got uh, some other blemish on your record, uh, it's very hard to get back into a home. And there's some societal things that have changed, right? So legislatively, we have changed some laws so that there are certain activities, specifically and primarily drug-related, that are no longer something that you get incarcerated for. And then there was also some reform. So the state pushed a whole bunch of people out of the state prisons into the county jails. And the counties didn't have those capacities. And so now we're having more and more people turned out, but we don't have those robust support systems necessary for people being released on that level. And so we have a lot of people outside that years ago when I started this work, because of the things that they were doing in their life, because of their chemical dependency, and sometimes with the crime that was associated with that, they would be inside and be getting treatment for that. That's just not available. And so we know that the solution to homelessness is a home, right? That is that's self-evident. But if we do not walk with that person through whatever caused the crisis, whatever created the chaos in their life, that cycle will repeat. And so as he talks about those communities of support, we have what we call aftercare. So we have individuals that stay with folks placed in housing for one, two, sometimes many years because that relationship, that checking in, how you're doing, what's going on. Okay, we're having another crisis and being able to help people stabilize instead of falling all the way out of housing, which is an incredibly expensive thing to do, to have them fall all the way out and then have to get them placed back in through the safety net. It's just not an effective way to treat things. And so that aftercare, those relationships, those long-term knowing how someone is doing really matters because often when people have come to our facilities, they have blown through their support network. They have exhausted everybody and no one's interested in taking a risk and putting their hand out again. And so we often become their family. 
and help them um, through those changes. But it it's not something that's uh, one and done, right? It's a long walk. It's life. Yeah, homelessness is not one of those things that it's just one solution and bam, it's gone. That's not the case. But th- this is going to be my, my last question. To get the ball rolling, what do you guys think the steps are going to be in order to either minimize it? Because I I mean, I'm hopeful that, that homelessness won't be a thing, but realistically, you know, things happen and, and life happens. So what would be your guys' plan to, to minimize the homelessness? First and foremost, we've got to build houses. We need housing. We're going to have to also take a look at regulation on how those units are constructed because it can be a very expensive prospect to get a unit online for people. Um, we know that if you've got somebody that's disabled, that if they're receiving Social Security, their rent that they can afford off of that monthly income is somewhere around $400 a month. So getting a unit online at that $400 a month is going to pay the note for the developer. That means we're going to have to have new and different building systems. And then we're going to have to build on a scale we haven't done since World War II because we are so many units behind in this state. And then I think that one of the things that we have gotten away from in this housing first push is that we don't look immediately at all of the other issues that are compromising a life. Chemical dependency, mental health issues, untreated trauma. (laughs) I don't know a single person that has come through my place that didn't suffer from untreated trauma because these are lives that have been very, very difficult. And so I really believe that we're going to have to truly get the therapeutic models in place to help people deal with that hurt. Some people are much more resilient and if they can find a faith community and they can get that support, that is fantastic. Some people have been through some incredibly harmful experiences, those that we don't even like to think about or talk about. And that type of hurt will continue to play itself out in their life until it can be addressed and healed. And so I feel that our services will need to include not just those housing placement, employment expansion, and workforce development, but what's going on in that life and how do we help them truly have that whole healthy future that they were always intended to have. So, I, you know, I agree that we need to ramp up housing like crazy. I get it. I think that, and I and I wholeheartedly believe in that because the other thing is, is that the service providers, I could tell a, a number of stories here. There's a thing here in Tulare that was um, going on for a while. It was called Link and they would invite people in to sit down at this table and um, they had the laptop computer and they would fill out the form. They check the blocks and get to know the person. And then they'd say, okay, we've got nothing for you. We'll get a hold of you if something comes up. And I would watch that person leave out of that conference room, walk out the door and go down the street with their head hung low because the promise of support or the what they desperately need was held out there and then said, no, we don't have enough. And I think that consistently happens to all of us as service agencies going, I have this soul. I really want to help them succeed and I don't have any exit resources. I don't have enough exit resources for them to become stable. And so, so my opinion, 
that's one aspect. We really got to get on with building some of the stable, long-term work and housing resources. But the other thing I think Lewis did a really good job of explaining is that there's community present here that needs to be maintained. And, and I think the best way to understand this is, so I told, I'd said in the introduction, I was Navy for 22 years. I was a medic, so the Navy corpsman. I did two Marine Corps tours. And so a little while ago, my wife and I went to Oceanside to take a vacation and, and we wound up I wound up going up to the base, uh, Camp Pendleton, to do a grocery shop for the week that we were going to stay in Oceanside. And when I got on base, there's movement going on, there's troop movement going on, there's there's tanks and you know equipment moving around. I get into the commissary and I'm shopping next to Marines and Marine families, and there's a couple of corpsmen in there. You can always tell the corpsmen they're they're the guys that don't look like Marines. Try to look like Marines, but we got longer hair and we act funny. Anyways, when I got into the store and I got on base, I I belonged there. I understood it. I know what they're doing. I speak the language. I, I am part of that culture, right? That, that is my culture. And yet I'm not like, I'm no longer a part of it, but I go back to it and I feel right there at home. So when you become homeless or you become a drug addicted or substance abuse addicted or trauma survivor, um, you now belong to this culture. And until we until we understand that there's this culture and there's a lot of negativity and lack of resource and judgment involved in that and move towards enhancing and keeping that community cohesive, but adding positive elements to it, opportunities, housing, support, counseling, any number of adjuncts that I could name, but keep the community, the culture together, then we'll start seeing success with people. And I think in, in a lot of ways we've seen, we start, we're starting to see that sort of in some service agencies going, I'm not wanting to remove people from their culture, their community, what they understand, where they feel like they belong. What I'm doing is adding positivity to it. I, I think we have to start paying attention to uh, some tribal warfare there. That That's really my point is keep people involved in that culture. They're part of it. They belong to it. They understand it. Let's move it to something more positive and stable for people. I love both of your your vision. But lastly, I, just, I really just wanted to thank you guys so much for taking the time to sit with me and talk and sharing your hearts with me. It's been a lot of fun to, to get to know you, Lewis and Dave. I plan on being there for a really long time, so we'll get to know each other pretty well. But yeah, thank you so much for sitting with me and talking with me and sharing your heart. I don't think this is the last time that we're going to talk, so, so thank you so much. I look forward to it. Well, that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. You will be able to find this podcast along with all the other runner podcasts on spotify soundcloud and apple music don't forget to tune in next week where we'll be discussing changing majors in college i hope you enjoyed this discussion and i hope you learned something we all live on this earth why not make it a nice place for everyone to call home i hope you guys have a great week and a great rest of your day see you next time